Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. Each week I'm joined by Chatham House experts as well as journalists, policymakers, diplomats to discuss the key events shaping our world today. On this edition, we'll be discussing the outcome of Brazil's presidential election, what it means for the country's democracy and for the Amazon. We'll be looking ahead to the midterm elections in the US next week and whether the Republican Party, much of it apparently still enamored with Donald Trump, will regain power in the House of Representatives and Senate. What happens if they do and what does it mean for the next presidential election? Finally, Chatham House is going to COP27 next week and I'll be talking to Anna Yang, Executive Director of our Sustainability Accelerator, to find out why this summit matters. Joining us this week to decode all of this, I'm delighted to have Leslie Vinjamuri, director of our US and the Americas program. Hi, Leslie. Good morning, Roman. Also joined by Christopher Sabatini, a senior fellow for Latin America here at Chatham House. Hello, Roman. Thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, Anna Yang, who heads up our Sustainability Accelerator Initiative. That's part of our big sustainability program, which really looks at kickstarting change. She is with us too. Hi, Anna. Hi. Let's start in Brazil. This week saw former President Lula da Silva beat the incumbent President Bolsonaro by the narrowest of electoral margins, 50.9% to 49.1%. And as we record this on Thursday, Bolsonaro, after a two-day silence, has acknowledged his loss and his office has announced the start of the transition of power. Chris, is that a relief? Yes. At a certain level, what we saw is, in some ways, the triumph of democratic institutions. The elections were carried out. They were certified as being free and fair by the electoral tribunal. And Bolsonaro stood down, despite for months saying that he wasn't going to accept the results, said he was going to have a transition. He didn't so much say that he endorsed the results. He just said there would be a transition. What he also said, and he repeated it on Wednesday, was he called his supporters to unblock the 300 or so highways that they had blocked, demanding that the results be overturned and ask that they accept this result and that they sort of go on to fight another day or win another day. Troublingly, however, is what we've seen recently have been protests in front by Bolsonaro supporters in front of military barracks and military headquarters calling for a coup to overturn the elections. He has not endorsed those. And, and a number of his supporters in Congress and so on have, have accepted the results. So there's a little bit of a tension there. He's trying to play it both ways, I think. But, but for now, he, he's certainly playing by the rules. The election result was really close. Why was that? Basically, Bolsonaroismo is is a real phenomenon. He he's tapped into what before was a very latent tendency within Brazil of, sort of conservatism, growing evangelical movements, rejection of of what they think is sort of wokeism, to borrow a term from an unfortunate term from the United States, and he really captured that and, and blended that also with a sense of sort of cowboy capitalism in the Amazon of clearing, deforesting, illegal mining for farming and the like. And he sort of he managed to meld that into a populist movement around himself and has had a fair amount of success. It's also worth noting, though, that Lula himself was a two term president from 2010 to um, I'm sorry, from 20 from 2003 to 2010 and was indicted and served about a year and a half in prison for corruption. And there's beyond that, there was just a large stain of corruption that surrounded his administration. So Bolsonaro also was a rejection of, of that corruption and, and, and all of the sort of sense of insider deals that went with it. So Lula's back now. How much change is that going to bring about? I think it's going to be difficult. First of all, they didn't win a majority in either house. In fact, the Bolsonaristas now have 
a sizable chunk of the seats in both the Senate and the chamber and could probably get a majority in the chamber. He built a broad coalition reaching out to the center. This is Lula. So he's going to be probably have to tilt a lot more to the center than he did before. Um, and he's heading into some pretty tough economic headwinds. Inflation is probably going to bounce back to about 10% in 2023. The fiscal deficit is very high in part because of Bolsonaro's profligate public spending and run up to the election. So he's going to have a tough time, but there are things that will make a difference with Lula. The environment and Anna can probably talk about that better than I, the, let's say, more um, sustainable fiscal management and, and better social policies will, I think, be on the agenda for Lula, and I think he's well-placed to, to address those. Anna, do you want to come in on that? How much of a difference is it for the Amazon? As Chris was just saying, Bolsonaro's policies on the Amazon you know, had some support. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I mentioned this on Chatham House's website early this week. This is definitely good news for the Brazilian Amazon, biodiversity and climate change. I mean, Lula has really good track record in curbing deforestation in Brazil. During his presidency, he did put in place policy and regulations to systematically reduce deforestation. While during Bolsonaro's term, this trend was reversed and increased by more than 70% in four years. And why it matters for climate and biodiversity, just a bit of context. So protection and restoration of forest and nature is key to both biodiversity and climate change and an in integral part of keeping the world in 1.5 degree warming is that we need to cut emission from fossil fuel, but also stop forest and nature conver conversion. And this is because forests act as a carbon sink. Yeah. No, absolutely. Can you spell out for us how much damage the Bolsonaro years did to the Amazon? Yeah, I mean, he, during his four years, and just to build, build on what Chris is talking about, that, he, well, first he was elected, he was the first president that put Amazon in his first, during his first election sort of speech, but that was not to protect, but to sort of remove all the regulations and then just have further development in the region. And he got quite a high level of support. And during those four years, what we have seen is the systematical increase of deforestation, but also increase in the sense of lawlessness. And there's a coupling between illicit armed traffic, drug trafficking with other illegal environmental activities such as deforestation and mining. So that's worrying and that's going to make Lula's effectiveness of his regulation in moving forward harder. Chris is nodding vigorously as you're talking. Chris, it's that, that sounds the, like a real problem. It is. And, it, and I was nodding at Anna saying the illicit nature of this. It's a real toxic mix in these areas. And it's going to be complicated for, for Lula to roll that back. Leslie, take us into the implications beyond Brazil's borders, because a lot of countries have been looking at this election very closely. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're really three things. The first is that the world's been watching to see whether this would be a fair election, whether it would be a non-violent and, and one in which if Lulu won, there would be a seamless transition. So I think everybody's been holding their breath and not only for Brazil, but also because there's sort of a what comes next or multiple elections around the world, not least the US, where people are concerned just about things going smoothly. Second is climate, and, and we've just heard about that. And, you know, will Brazil turn, take a different path, which is just critical? 
And then I think the third one is, you know, what comes next? There's there's a sort of, you know, there's this big question of what is Latin America leaning towards towards China? Is it leaning towards the U.S.? And that question is answered differently in different countries. But I think there is a real question about, you know, where does Brazil go now? I'm nodding vigorously as you're talking. Uh, Chris, what about that point that Leslie just raised about where, if you like, what this means about Latin America, the the direction of travel of some governments in Latin America? Generally, what we're seeing is is elections have brought into office a wave of leftist governments of varying stripes. And so it's difficult to paint them all with the same, I guess, pink or red brush. But in the case of Brazil, Lula, in his first term, and I think this is something he will repeat, was really a global leader. And he took on issues of of global south and and trade negotiations. He did build better relations with China. China is now Brazil's largest trade partner. He also really sort of solidified, if you will, the BRICS and tried to carve out an independent foreign policy. I I would expect to see a, a little, again, a little bit more resistance in the United States. Obviously, Bolsonaro had a very close relationship with Trump of all people. He is one of the last leaders to, to recognize Biden's victory. So I do think Lula will be a little bit more a little bit more non-aligned and a little bit more pro-China than Bolsonaro was. I don't think that's that's necessarily alarming, but it's just very much the nature of him and the, the, the foreign policy advisors around him, Celso Amanim and Antonio Patriota and so on. All right. And the first thing you're going to look for in terms of just trying to judge how much Lula can do? I think the first is going to be his cabinet and what he rolls out. He probably will draw from some of the centrist parties at PSDB. And so who he points and where, I think he's probably, I think he'll definitely appoint a very strong person in the environment ministry. And then so how he tackles issues of tax reform, which are going to be key, and pension reform. Those are the two big environmental issues he has. And his foreign minister. He he has a really good deep bench of foreign advisors. I, I suspect I, a couple of them will be up for nominations. I think that will sort of shape both his economic policy and his foreign policy. Okay, great. Well, we'll look at the Chatham House website where you're prolific writing. There and other places. <laughs> He's going to tell us all these, all these things. Let's, on that, swing north up to the US. And next week, November the 8th, the polls open for the midterm elections in which the Democratic Party is fighting to retain its narrow control of the House and Senate. Leslie, it's getting closer, isn't it? It is. Well, first of well, all, the election's getting yeah. closer. And, and uh, I, I know yeah, you meant the, the, the race. <laughs> the, 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 the race is getting tighter. Exactly. I mean, one thing I w- would would remind us is that, you know, people are already voting. We've had millions of people vote. Really we're, good point. We're projected to have the highest turnout potentially that we've ever seen. It's certainly the side of the Cold War the, in the midterm elections. We had 122 million Americans vote in 2018, and we, we might well exceed that. So midterm elections suddenly matter a lot, and they're gaining global States attention. States can choose if they want to have a lot of early voting, can't they? That's right. It's a decision made you know, state by state. But to your to your question, it's, a, it's exactly the right one. I think that you know, in September, the headline was that the Democrats looked like they were doing well. In October, People started to say, actually, the Republicans look like they'll take both the the Senate and the House. But the reality is we don't know that a huge amount of this will come down to who turns out. Polling isn't very good at anticipating or predicting who actually turns out. If young voters turn out, if 18 to 29 year olds turn out up to sort of 42 or or, or 50 percent, seems unlikely. But if they did, the Democrats would would take both the House and the Senate. That's a really interesting point. Is is one of the ways in which polls regularly go wrong is not judging what people are inclined to vote, but whether or not they actually do exactly. turn up on the day. Roe versus Wade, 
it sounded back in the summer as if that was going to be a big factor and a help for the Democrats. It doesn't look so much that way, does it? No, and again, it's one of those uh, sort of unknowns and people are really waiting to see. I, I think right now there's a sense that it's that it doesn't have the, the impact that, that it had around that Kansas vote that we saw over the summer where the number of a young women who registered, who hadn't been registered to vote before, who turned out and really held on to those abortion rights in the state of Kansas. Will that effect be witnessed across the United States? People think it, it has been dampened, but but the reality, again, we don't know how many people have registered to vote and then will actually turn out. It could be much bigger than we imagine, but there, you know, what, what what we anticipate is that a lot of Republican voters are turning out and they're voting very much, A, it's sort of an anti-Biden vote, he's not a popular president, and B, it's a concern with the economy, whereas I think there's there's a, there's still a sense that Democrats are turning out in part on the question of, of abortion rights. But it's, it's a complicated picture. Uh, the Republicans have said that they will pass legislation if, if they gain control of, of Congress that will that will protect abortion up to 15 weeks. Now, for a lot of Americans, 15 weeks is actually okay. So it's been a, it's been a very complicated debate at home. It's it's at the moment it's taking being fought state by state. And so, you know, voter turnout is in part driven by whether you're in a state that's saying, you know, after six weeks, there there is no option to, to make choices about your body. Maybe we'll see higher turnout does, in those states. What does it mean for Joe Biden if he loses control of one or both houses of Congress? I think that that President Biden is very aware that his ability to legislate probably ends in in early January. This is partly why he's pushed so hard on the Inflation Reduction Act, on infrastructure, on the chips. So he's going that that legislative agenda gets much tougher. The question of you know if if the the Democrats lose the House and lose control of those committees, the investigations of President Trump end and the investigations of of President Biden begin and those around him. I think the Democrats know this. They've been preparing for this. This isn't new news. Politics just get much harder. The, you know, the direction of travel on China, which we've already seen, which is hardening even in the it's Democratic Party. tougher and tougher. It will get tougher and tougher and will become more ideological. And I think the key point here is, you know, President Biden has wanted to cooperate with China on climate and compete with China pretty much everywhere else. That cooperation side of the agenda, it's already been very tough. It's going to get much, much tougher if the Republicans really take over in the House and the Senate. Chris, what are the U.S.'s neighbors looking for? Well, they're they're looking for, let's say, a less cruel, more humane immigration policy, for one. Which means what exactly? First of all, it means, in some cases, temporary protected status for countries that are undergoing a crisis, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, basically allowing people to more easily and to be accepted and to get a path to citizenship, or at least a green card in those countries. It also means a more regularized flow for asylum seekers. Right now, they're still being held mostly in, in, in Mexico. You know, it, it, I think many would like to see a much more rational U.S. immigration policy overall that allowed for more visas around work and family unification. But that's obviously off the table given the, the very toxic U.S. politics around immigration. That's the first thing they'll see. The second is there are some countries in the region that would like to see better relations in terms of free trade. 
in particular Uruguay and, and Ecuador are both sort of lobbying and trying to get in for with a free trade agreement with the United States. I think they would. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's just obviously trade is also off the table, given the the, the very rejection that that Trump tapped into. And then last, I do think they, they would. Many governments in the region would like to see the U.S.'s rhetoric on China toned down. And again, I don't think that's going to happen. But they feel the classic strategy of Latin American diplomacy has been always to to build alliances or at least a, what's called a strategic neutrality to counter U.S. Uh, power and and hegemony in the region. And they've done this you know, in many cases with the EU, with the Soviet Union even at times, and now they're trying to do it with China. And, and to be honest, they're feeling very trapped with the U.S. rhetoric and it's, it's sort of jockeying with China. And that, that really puts them in a difficult position, even with some of the U.S.'s closest allies like Chile or Colombia. Leslie, that trade point... What do you make of that? How much of, of trade policy is actually going to be affected by this? I think very little. Trade has not been on the agenda on the, under the Biden presidency. It's certainly in the first two years, it's not going to be on the agenda. In the second two years, there's so many battles to fight. I mean, I think the first thing about this election, just to remember, is that, you know, Joe Biden said it. It's partly political because he obviously wants people to vote, but he's, he's absolutely right. The elections are about, is, is America and a democracy that can conduct a free and fair and nonviolent election? It's The stakes are extremely high. And, you know, to, to Chris's point on the European side here in the UK, what are people waiting for and watching for? Certainly a number of policy choices are, are critical. China, climate, trade. But the, the really big question, I think, for Europeans is what is the role going to be of the, of the Republican Party, of Donald Trump in the future, of Trumpism? What kind of America are we looking to? And, they're, and they're, I think people are looking very, very carefully. They're looking race by race. They're looking to see whether election deniers are voted into office, how they change the rules, and what that means for 2024. This is the beginning of the 2024 presidential election. And those are where the stakes are just phenomenally high. We've seen America under Joe Biden really play ball with Europe when it comes to, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And and I think that strength, that solidity, we've almost very quickly begun to take it for granted. These elections will tell us whether that's the right call. We'll come on to the Ukraine question in, in a moment. But Anna, what are you most looking out for? I think Leslie's point about solidity is absolutely clear. I, I mean, we all, you all mentioned that U.S. is one of the leaders in terms of climate negotiation, and we will be. And Democrats are historically more progressive on that. So, we will be watching in terms of what is U.S. capability to deliver on its commitment at home and abroad. Thanks for that. And I mentioned Ukraine. As I said last week, a new feature that we're starting on this podcast is a question to all these panellists from a Chatham House member. And you may have seen, if you remember, on LinkedIn or in our newsletters, invitations to send questions to our producer, John Pollock. Uh, so do do that and we will read them out or pick one at least. And the question this week is from John Paul Rosario. How would a Republican takeover of the House of Representatives affect what President Biden is trying to accomplish on Ukraine? This came up a lot, I must say, when I was in Washington last week. Leslie? You know, I, th I think it is the big question. There are certainly people who are concerned that, that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican who would become Speaker of the House, were the Republicans to, to take over the House, that he might push back. He certainly said there won't, that President Biden won't have a free pass on Ukraine. I think, in fact, we've seen very strong bipartisan support for sending assistance to Ukraine. We'll see more assistance that the president tries to get through before January when the new Congress comes into place. But the 
the fact is that, you know, regardless of the results, there is a very big question in front of us of what is America's policy towards Ukraine. There's going to be strong support, but that support, that war, as it as it continues, the question is going to come up. And part of it, you know, in terms of the Republicans and whether they get more control, part of that will depend on what happens to the economy, what happens with inflation, how do the dynamics of the run-up to the presidential election go. I mean, I think broadly, the American people have, you know, we've seen poll after poll, the American people are broadly supportive, regardless of high gas prices, regardless of inflation, they're supportive of looking after Ukraine, I think that will continue, but everything's going to change in the weeks ahead, not just who controls and It Congress. does feel quite conditional. I certainly heard that support when I was on, on the Hill last week, but also qualified in the sense, well, it depends if the European partners stump up and keep supporting as well. And there's certainly an element in each party that is saying, look, we've really had enough of these foreign engagements. So I, I would agree with you that the, 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 you know, the balance of opinion is for keeping supporting it. That's something we're going to come back to. We have one last little segment for you, and that is to pivot to Egypt. Next week, Chatham House is going to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, along with an awful lot of other people. And Anna, I wanted to ask you the significance of this particular gathering, COP27. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State we had last week at Chatham House, said this was the the meeting of the parties where implementation was the, the big test, the big project. Did you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to build it from also what the last COP that under, under the UK presidency meant, right? The UK presidency had the slogan, which is keeping the 1.5 degree alive, and which is asking for the countries and, and private sectors to come up to the table and say, what is your commitment to deliver 1.5 degree? And so this one is then say, what are your plans? What have you done? And what else can you do? So this is why John Kerry talks about implementation. He also mentions about implementation plus, and I think that's something that I want to build on. So implementation plus for me and for many of us means you have to deliver on the things that you have committed to the transition, to the net zero transition, but also new stuff, the stuff that actions, plans that you wouldn't be able to do alone either country alone or the company alone, but step into that collaborative, cooperative space and then work across value chain, work across sort of from investor to corporate to private sector to, to consumers. And that's what we're looking for, for in terms of implementation plus. Two additional point, money is going to matter. So developing countries will be asking for the commitments that rich developed countries made and say, where's the money where to, to enables us to transition? There's just, there are loss and damages negotiation. There's adaptation finance. So that will be critical. If there's money on the table, negotiations will be easier. And finally, I want to circle back to the discussion on Brazil and Amazon. The world will welcome Brazil back. Brazil has always been a very progressive player and voice. And so having Brazil having sort of a chance of stopping deforestation will definitely be mean good sign for keeping 1.5 degree alive and implementing the commitments there. Thank you for that excellent preview. And we're going to have more of that next week, lots of it. But you've pointed out, as many have, the good fortune for COP of this particular election result. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up for this week. So a big thank you to my guests, Leslie, Chris and Anna. You can follow us all on Twitter. 
You can find all of Chatham House podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major podcast platforms, as well as our social media channels. So do follow us, subscribe, do leave us a review. Not the last time I'm going to ask you. And for all our work, or to become a member, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can find the work of our US and America's program and our sustainability accelerator. Next week, we'll be bringing you all the latest from our experts out at COP and other live questions and things on our mind. For now, taking a quick breather in between elections. See you next week. (laughs) 